Section 30 of Life of John Churchill, Duke of Marlborough by Louise Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 14 The Trial of Sacheverell, Part 1. The state of things which Marlborough found on returning to England was not likely to increase his peace of mind. The disagreement between the Queen and the Duchess was greater than ever. In the spring of 1708, the Duchess, furious at the growing influence of Mrs. Masham, had threatened to retire from court and asked that the Queen would give the offices she held to her daughters. The Queen listened to her violent reproaches, mixed with passionate tears, with some confusion. She tried to put an end to the scene by saying, You and I must never part but the duchess insisted upon her promising that in case she had to withdraw from court her offices should be given to her daughters this promise she afterwards managed to get from the queen in writing but her importunate conduct was not likely to win back for her the queen's favour she was so mortified by the treatment she met with at court that she at last decided to retire for a time to the country and wrote to the queen your majesty will neither be surprised nor displeased to hear that i am gone into the country since by your very hard and uncommon usage of me you have convinced all sorts of people as well as myself that nothing would be so uneasy to you as my near attendance after the battle of audinarda the discord between the queen and the duchess broke out in a public quarrel the duchess as mistress of the robes had arranged the jewels which the queen was to wear at the thanksgiving service for the victory the queen for some reason or another refused to wear the jewels selected by the duchess who at once put this down to mrs masham's influence as they were in the coach on the way to church she began to scold the queen for her conduct and even during the service whispered her reproaches in anne's ear when anne wanted to answer she interrupted her and bade her be silent lest they should be overheard not content with this outrageous conduct she afterwards when sending a letter from the duke to the queen wrote with it a letter containing still more violent reproaches the queen's anger at this conduct was so great that she no longer sought to disguise it by kind words she wrote to the duchess after the commands you gave me in the church on the thanksgiving of not answering you i should not have troubled you with these lines but to return the duke of marlborough's letter safe into your hands the duchess could not be silenced and wrote still more rudely i should think myself wanting in my duty to you if i saw you so much in the wrong as without prejudice or passion i think you are in several particulars and did not tell you of it the letter was followed by an interview in which the duchess grew so angry that the loud tones of her voice penetrated to the ante-room she came out with eyes bathed in tears and the queen was found also weeping the duchess could not let the matter rest though marlborough wrote to her that he wished she would see that the queen is not capable of being changed by reason so that you must be quiet till the time comes in which she must change the duchess did at last take the resolution of neither speaking nor writing any more to the queen and for a few weeks there was no intercourse between them the death of the prince of denmark again brought them together in apparent friendship 
the duchess hurried up to kensington from windsor as soon as she heard of the prince's danger she was present at his death led the queen away from his deathbed and knelt by her in her closet trying to soothe the violence of her grief she then persuaded anne to move to st james's palace for a change of scene and the queen agreed but much offended the duchess by giving her her watch and bidding her withdraw till the hand had reached a certain point and meanwhile send mrs masham to her the duchess went but would not send for mrs masham as she did not like to give such a sign of her rival's favour before the crowd in the antechamber the queen however managed to send a message to mrs masham to join her at st james's whither the duchess now conducted her anne's grief was easily diverted by the business of arranging the small details of the funeral the duchess wrote some years after her love to the prince seemed in the eyes of the world to be prodigiously great and great as was the passion of her grief her stomach was greater for that very day he died she ate three very large and hearty meals so that one would think that as other persons grief takes away their appetites her appetite took away her grief nor was it less remarkable where there was so great an appearance of love the peculiar pleasure she took before his funeral in setting the order of it and naming the persons that were to attend and placing them according to their rank and the rules of precedence which was the entertainment she gave herself every day till that solemnity was over anne sent a note to the duchess the very evening after the prince's death begging her to tell the lord treasurer to see that there may be a great many yeomen of the guards to carry the prince's dear body that it may not be let fall the great stairs being very steep and slippery this renewal of intercourse between the queen and the duchess came to nothing for the duchess only obtained new proofs of mrs masham's favour she always found her either with the queen or just leaving the room in fact things did not go well with the duchess in those days she had lost the queen's favour and she was beginning to quarrel with her friends the whigs too the Whigs had been ready to court her when they hoped to make her of use, but now that they were in power they adopted a more haughty tone both to Godolphin and the Duchess. They demanded as rights what they had before sued for as favours. The Duchess, deeply offended at the tone of the Whigs, abused them in her letters to the Duke as violently as she had before abused the Tories, bitterly declared her intention of having no more to do with party politics, and accused the Whigs of intriguing with Harley and Mrs. Masham. Marlborough was appealed to by the Queen, Godolphin, and the Duchess in all their difficulties. Convinced that now he could hope for nothing from the Tories, he wished to work in entire concord with the Whigs, and was disappointed to find that they still looked upon both him and the Treasurer with suspicion. The Duchess's conduct only increased his uneasiness. Even if she did not seek to see the Queen, she could not refrain from writing angry letters to her reproaching her for her fondness for mrs masham and her supposed intercourse with harley in vain the duke urged upon her to let the matter rest be obliging and kind to all your friends he wrote and avoid entering into cabals but this is just what the duchess could not do each mark of her loss of the queen's favour was only the occasion of more violent letters on one occasion she sent her a long letter full of extracts from the whole duty of man and from the prayer-book and bishop taylor's works 
reminding her that none could conscientiously partake of the lord's supper unless they were at peace and in charity with all mankind when the duchess many years afterwards published the justification of herself which she called her conduct she said of this letter nor had my papers any apparent effect on her majesty except that after my coming to town as she was passing by me in order to receive the communion she looked with much good nature and very graciously smiled upon me but the smile and the pleasant look i had reason afterwards to think were given to bishop taylor and the common prayer-book and not to me the queen worried past endurance by the duchess's tempers and scoldings lent more and more upon mrs masham and through mrs masham harley found a way of access to her he had a passion for mystery and intriguing as st john said of him in days long after when both were again out of power no man was more desirous of power and he had a competent share of cunning to wriggle himself into it but then his part was over and no man was more at a loss how to employ it harley was now in his element he had the ear of the queen who clung to him on account of his high church views whilst she hated the whigs because she looked upon them as latitudinarians mrs masham was always at hand to introduce him up a back stair into the queen's presence or to carry messages between the two but as most of the servants about the court owed their places to the duchess of marlborough the queen feared lest they should act as spies upon her and chose at this time often to live in a small house at windsor rather than in the castle so that she might safely carry on her intercourse with harley she chafed at the bondage in which she was held by the marlboroughs and the whigs and without courage to break the bonds herself listened with pleasure to the plans and suggestions of harley the suspicion of all this intriguing and the knowledge that he no longer enjoyed the queen's favour so entirely as formerly made marlborough anxious to attain to a position where he could be safe from any change of fortune he thought that it might be possible to get a patent from the queen naming him captain-general for life before leaving for the continent in the spring of seventeen o nine he spoke to the lord chancellor cooper on the subject the lord chancellor at once declared that such a grant would be unconstitutional at marlborough's entreaty he searched the public records to see whether he could find a precedent for it but in vain marlborough would not give up his object he again communicated with the lord chancellor on the subject from flanders but with the same result and even then not discouraged wrote to the queen and made his demand it reached the queen just when harley and mrs masham and their friends were doing their utmost to persuade her of the danger she was in from the excessive power of the marlboroughs and seemed seriously to have alarmed her swift tells us that she consulted privately with several friends whether there would be any danger in refusing the duke's request and the duke of argyle said she need not be in pain for he would undertake whenever she commanded to seize the duke at the head of his troops and bring him away either dead or alive finally she positively refused his request and the duke so far forgot his wonted courtesy and moderation as to write an angry letter to her reproaching her for want of regard for his services and for her bad treatment of his wife and encouragement of mrs masham the whole proceeding was most unwise 
particularly in the queen's existing temper for it gave colour to the accusations of his enemies who continually told the queen that it was dangerous to allow such great power to be in the hands of a subject and even insinuated that the duke might aspire to be a second cromwell and place himself upon the throne whilst secret plans were being made for their destruction the whigs had attained to the summit of their desires and the government was entirely in their hands but there was one body in the state and that perhaps the most important with which the whigs were by no means in high favour this was the church which for some years had been of comparatively little importance in politics so that men had forgotten a little the enormous hold it had upon the people during the reign of charles the second the doctrine of the divine right of kings had been enthusiastically maintained the clergy had proclaimed charles i as a martyr and had not hesitated to compare his sufferings to those of christ himself only james the second's declarations of indulgence and the favours heaped by him upon the catholics had made them reluctant participators in the revolution a large body known as non-jurors had refused to take the oaths of allegiance to william the third they had hailed with delight the accession of anne for in her they recognised a legitimate sovereign and anne's care for the church had satisfied their warmest wishes anne gave many substantial proofs of her strong attachment to the church of england in seventeen o four she surrendered her claim to the first fruits of ecclesiastical benefices and devoted them to the creation of a fund called queen anne's bounty out of which small livings were to be augmented and by this just and generous act earned the gratitude of the clergy anne's special favour was given to the high church party she thought the low church to whom the whigs were more inclined too latitudinarian in their views the high church party were full of veneration for the rights of the sovereign and began to take up again with zeal soon after the accession of anne the doctrine of the divine right of kings to which the whigs as promoters of the revolution were strongly opposed the tory doctrine of passive obedience was loudly proclaimed and the clergy began to raise the cry that the church was in danger and to attack more or less openly the ministers whom they accused of desires to conciliate the nonconformists a small thing sufficed to show the strength of the clergy and the hold they had upon the people End of section thirty